0: Hello everybody. Hello, hello,
1: hello. Hello Nicole. Hi Charlie.
0: Hi. Hi. I hear your sick voice, you know. Yeah, you no, I I I meant that in the in in the way of sick meaning a <laughs> word for pathology. I didn't mean what a great voice. Um, but I know you've been sick. So I'm glad you've been able to make it.
1: I'm thrilled to, this, to be here. Uh, yeah. No, this is a big one. This is the this is the big 100. 101 actually. This right?
0: is the so so this, yeah, this episode is the 101st podcast of To Hell and Back, and, uh, and so I've been pondering what to do. I mean, it does, it seems like it deserves something That to... it's been a hundred episodes uh, starting literally five years ago, about right now, to tell you the truth, it was September of uh, 2017 that mm-hmm. I did the first one. And within the first three or four, I did the first person that I interviewed who was come from a, a hellish situation was a therapist in Puerto Rico, Domingo, uh, who w- went through the hurricane Maria there. So it also seems timely that we just had Hurricane Ian going on in our country right now. And it actually did pass through Puerto Rico, but it, dev- it was more devastating in Florida. So, so this is... This is going to be a kind of like lessons learned over five years. Full circle moment. Uh, um, yeah, of thinking about people who've been in hell of different kinds, and um, and and what have various solutions been that people have had. So, I've been thinking about what to say to you all um, in this podcast. So I'm going to fly with that. And, and Nicole, I think. I appreciate yeah. you being here because you, you started out more I as did a I started
1: out as a listener and a huge fan. And a lot of these episodes have really impacted me, have been incredibly thought provoking and meaningful. I've shared them with a lot of people. And so I'm here just to hold space and to cheer and drink tea and, um, and be <laughs> yes. quiet in the background, mute myself. So you don't hear my coughing and, um, mm-hmm. And really just just say what a privilege it's been to be on this journey and then joining this journey. So everyone enjoy this. Oh. It's going to be a really delicious celebration. Oh,
0: thanks. thanks. let's not overbill it before I do it. But <laughs> I appreciate, I really appreciate that. And um, so, you know, I wasn't thinking I would do this, but now that I mentioned the hurricane episode, Five years ago, I thought maybe I should start with singing the song I wrote at that episode. There was I I, I met with Domingo Marquez in uh, five years ago after Hurricane Maria. A Hurricane Maria took place on September twentieth, two thousand seventeen, and um, he went through that with his small children and wife and and in living in San Juan, and uh, and and then after the first. I then had a second conversation with him. If you, with it, Some of you may have heard this, maybe you haven't. They're all preserved, but uh, you could get access to it. But it was very interesting to hear him. And I was so touched by what he had to go through and how he prepared with his children that when it came to the second episode, I said, uh, Domingo, has anybody ever written a song for you? And he said, no. And I said, all right, well, here it comes because I wrote a song for you. And then I sang, it's sort of like, it's not really a saw it's sort of between a rap and a poem so i have to I have to dig it out right now and i'm gonna and i'm gonna let me just see if I can find it right here quickly and I want to um I, I wish I had you know a, a back a backtrack here I, if I was more professional I'd have a whole sort of a bebop backtrack of some kind that that you would hear behind this but it's just gonna be me with uh, trying to approximate the rhythm and This is a song or poem called Ode to Domingo and His Island. So here it goes. Hey, yo, Domingo, there's something I wanna sing. So escúchame mi amigo. Mientras yo canto de Puerto Rico. And the winds came up and they shook the place. Water flowed in, leaving not a trace of the earth you walk on every day and the places that you work and the places that you play. Your baby daughter and your son around. Your son asked, Daddy, will the house blow down? You said, no, son, but we have gotta prepare, get a blanket, get some food and put them there in the closet where you and your sister will be. Till the storm dies down, then we'll all go see what's happening out in the neighborhood. So now tell me, what do you want in the closet for food? I just want Nutella and my blanket if it's cold. And my sister needs her favorite stuffed animal to hold. You got yourselves ready like a thousand times before when hurricanes came knocking at your reinforced door. Got enough cans of food, gas for the car, jugs of water and got your cell phones charged. But Maria was more than a hurricane. It was a once in a lifetime fucking freight train roaring through the house, tearing through the town, smashing the whole island, shutting it down. Streets became rivers, trees were uprooted. Roofs went flying, the country was screwed power was destroyed and you weren't connected with internet or phones and your water got infected and you all prayed for help but it was slow coming round. the mayor of san juan cried out and got smacked down by trump who gave himself a big fat a and proclaimed victory for the usa to radically accept this kind of behavior would be hard for gandhi moses or christ the savior then you all went out to the countryside where the terrible damage could hardly be described You found an 80 year old man whose house was gone with no food around to keep him going for long. And you and your friends in the spirit of giving went out to discover who was dead and who was living, went out to lift your people up and fix your gorgeous land. You and your country took your future in your hands. It's strange to say you're lucky when there's been catastrophe causing so much suffering on your island in the sea. But if there's lemonade or guacamole, it would be to see that every person matters. Reciprocity, reciprocity. is helpers helping victims, helpers being victims too. Children help the parents who do all that they can do. If you lose so much so fast in one day and then live another, is there anything that matters but to love one another? Please keep your hope and spirit, a hurricane can scatter. Things that might have seemed important, but what really matters is that neighbors help neighbors taking care of each other. Sister helping sister and brother helping brother. Oh, that was it. Five years ago. Oh, my God. It's like yesterday.
1: I just want to chirp about in time. and say that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Chirping. <laughs> love that. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, it's funny. You know, I supervise somebody right now who's a resident in psychiatry, a trainee in psychiatry at University of Massachusetts Medical School. So happens she's from Puerto Rico. And so she asked, she heard that I had done that because she heard about my podcast. And so I I Did that with her a couple of weeks ago, and she said, Oh my god, why don't you get together with like what's his name? Um, uh, uh Miranda, you know, who I'm, uh,
1: yeah, Lynn first- Manuel Miranda, yeah, yeah, Lynn yeah,
0: Manuel yeah, why don't you get together with Lin-Manuel Miranda and the two of you could perform that and that uh, people would love that down in Puerto Rico. I thought, oh, what a great idea. So, okay, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on that. Okay, Lin and I, we're Hamilton. like this. <laughs> Charlie and Lin. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's where the whole podcast started and it, and it very much inspired me. And I want to say a, a number of things today. First of all, I want to talk a little about why the hell am I so preoccupied with health? Uh, and just say a little this is this gets this might not interest you because it gets kind of into personal reflections but you never know and so um i because I have to start to wonder after an entire career in a family where my father was first a car salesman and then the manager of a golf club and country club where people always act happy though actually when you're the come club manager. It's not always happy because all of these rich people are blaming you for not having the right kind of butter on the table when they brought their guests. Fuck them. You know, it's like, so it's, it's a, it's not always a great job, but for me, it was a place I grew up around a golf course and people are laughing and talking and playing golf and swimming and stuff like that. It's sort of like, what does that have to do with hell? You know? And then, and then I went off to college and I did okay and uh, continued on to medical school. But I'll tell you where I started to realize that I was kind of preoccupied with suffering. Um, I don't think I realized it before this, but when I got into medical school, my first year, I came across this kid, like 11 year old girl, down by the emergency room at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven. And she was in there by herself on a stretcher and she obviously had been in some kind of accident or serious illness. And she was crying and no one was there. And I'm like a first year medical student thinking, what the fuck, what is going on here? What is the matter that nobody's here with this poor girl? And then I investigate and I ask her, and I said, are your parents here? And she says, yeah, they were here. I don't know where they are now. So then I go out to the front desk and I say, this girl's here by herself. Is there anything that could be done with, with her? Are her parents here? Yeah, her parents are here, but we asked them to stay in the waiting room. Why? because she had to go for an x-ray. Well, has she had her x-ray? We don't know. We're not sure if x-ray showed up. And then I realized how people can get lost in the hospital at age 11 and just be there. And she just looked like she had terror on her face. And and so I sort of worked to reunite her with her parents or get her parents to be able to come in until she had her x-ray and go with her with the the x-ray. So that was one thing. And then I ended up writing, we all had to, where I went to medical school, you had to write a thesis, uh, like a dissertation. Um, And so I did a research study of um, children in the hospital, and especially children that are two and a half years old and coming in for surgery for cleft palate in the hospital, and then followed them extremely closely. I mean, like I was on them. I mean, I'm there nearly 24 hours a day with a video camera sitting in the corner of the bedroom so that even overnight from midnight until seven in the morning, I'm sitting there and I'm running a camera and watching what, what, what does a child go through in a hospital? What does a child go through? What is going on in their mind? What the hell is going on here? What am I doing in this room with these three other children in crips? And I'm standing here. And I I just had my doll, but I threw it on the floor and now I can't reach it. And now my arm is stuck in the bars between in the on the edge of the bed here. And I don't know what to do. And occasionally a nurse walks in and the nurse says, how are you, honey? And, you, and then the girl smiles and then they say, oh, it's good to see you're doing well. And then they walk out and it's like, oh, my God, what is going on here behind closed doors in these hospitals? And this hospital actually was famous in the country for what's called rooming in back in the fifties and sixties, where parents are encouraged to room in and accommodated to room in and be with their child. But the parents weren't there. But this a two and a half year old. What is this, a war zone or something? Is this New Haven? Yale. I mean, and, and what's going on? So I was very troubled by this. And I, I, observed and was often in an ethical dilemma because I thought I should be helping these children, but at the same time I was trying to observe their natural situation there. So I would be there and if something terrible happened, like like I like they throw their dolly on the floor and they can't get it, I'd go get their dolly and and, and then I rated these videotapes. I developed a rating system and I rated them for six weeks at home before they came to the hospital and for six weeks at their homes after they left the hospital. So I could see who they were before, who they were during and who they were after. But then I got interested in the hell the parents were going through because the parents didn't know what to do. And they were supposedly accommodated, but they didn't feel like it and they felt that this is an alien environment and that nurses treated them like second-class citizens so they they would not come and then they would come and expect a warm welcome from their daughter or son and their two and a half year old daughter or son would reject them you know which is classic with separation anxiety and so It's like um, I I was very preoccupied with the suffering, with the hell that two and a half year olds are going through in the hospital and the parents are going through at home. And actually, if you get to know the nurses, some of the nurses are going through trying to be nurses with all of these children. And so then I started hanging out on the pediatric ward while I was a medical student. And I would be part of a program that was uh, called Child Life. And Child Life program was to try to help the child's experience in the hospital, help them prepare for things, help them be comforted, help them have things. So I'd bring my guitar and I'd play songs sometimes for some of the kids. And at one point there was this kid, he he must have been eight. He was the, the son of a couple of faculty members at Yale. And he had what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome, where your your nervous system is taken over by a virus for a few weeks and it shuts everything down and you basically, he couldn't speak and he he couldn't do almost anything. And he's just sitting there and he's looking quite sad. So I came and was singing songs for him and he couldn't tell me what he wanted to hear. He couldn't tell me if he was glad I was singing or not, but I'm just playing these songs. And then I played played the song, um, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon and sang that. And then in the middle of one line when it said, And a dragon lives forever, but not so little boys. I thought, oh, shit, did I just sing that to this kid who's probably afraid of dying? And he's just looking at me like as if nothing else has happened. And so I I do things like this, wondering, what are these children's experiences like and then I would wonder, why am I so interested in this? I mean, everybody else is interested in kidneys and livers and, you know, how the nervous system works. I mean, I was interested in those things, too. But, like, what, why this additional thing? And, by the way, that family contacted me weeks later after he was out of the hospital. And he was speaking, and he was back to nearly normal, sort of. And they said that he came when he came home, he sang the song, Puff the Magic Dragon, from beginning to end without missing a word. And he had learned the whole song just from my one singing of it. It was like, whoa, he was really paying attention. And so I was very involved with that and then very involved with the Yale Child Study Center and interested in traumatized children and children with autism and what's going on with all these people and children with childhood schizophrenia. And then, um, so that was a a big deal. And then there's a certain moment when I made this connection and it was it's weird that I hadn't made it before, but I made this connection that um, we were in a seminar, actually, about our own experiences in medical care. Uh, I forget the course it was, but we were having a, a, like eight of us in a circle talking. So we said, well, have you, has anybody here ever been in the hospital? It, we went around the room and I said, no, not me. And then, it went around, then I sat there for a minute. I thought, oh, that's not true. I was in the hospital. And so I came back, I raised my hand. I said, no, I w- actually I was in the hospital. I just don't remember it. Why well, don't you remember it? Well, so I was six weeks old. Oh, what was that? Well, I had a tumor growing on the side of my jaw and it was growing really fast and they didn't know what it was, and they thought it might be a dangerous cancer, but they didn't know, so I was in Oregon, so they took me to University of Oregon Medical Center in Portland, and they had all these doctors see me and decide what to do, what to do, what to do, and they decide, okay, let's, we should take this out. So they take out this thing, and it turns out to be a benign tumor that's growing on my jaw, you know. Then I was in the hospital again, and I thought, oh yeah, and I wasn't, and yeah, I've been told I was also in the hospital when I was about a year old, and I had whooping cough. And I was coughing so hard that I couldn't breathe. So they put me in a tent in the hospital is the way it was explained to me, this big steamed tent and, and I'm whooping cough and it was a life-threatening illness. That's why everybody started to get immunized for whooping cough, not because of me, but because it's a life-threatening illness. And then, um, then I was in again when I was about a year and a half. And why was I then? Because I had strep throat, but not just ordinary strep throat. I had a temperature that got up to 108, which is right at the edge of living or d- dying. And so I was like between life and death at 107, 108. And they put me in a bath of ice cubes in order to bring my temperature down, which must have been a heck of a lot of fun for a one-and-a-half-year-old. And then I started realizing it was that. Oh, and then, oh, yeah. And then there was this time when I was three. And on my third birthday, I was got this new tricycle. And I'm riding around the corner in my little neighborhood in Albany, Oregon. And somebody who happens to be my godfather backs up a moving van because he's helping someone move their furniture and runs over me and runs over my tricycle and destroys it. And my leg was under it. And it didn't quite break it, but it strained it a lot. So I was in the hospital again. So by the time I was three, I was in the hospital like those four times and with a lot of distress, and as I quizzed my mother about all this later, yeah, I, they thought every time that they might lose me. So I went through all of this, and I have no conscious memory of any of it. I have a tiny memory, actually, of my leg being up in traction when I was a little boy, and I was three, and I was in the hospital. I'm lying on my back, my leg, but nothing nothing else. So, I, I, so I, I, I am absolutely convinced by now, after years of living, and years of being focused on hell, and years of psychoanalysis that I went through, 11 years, by the way, if you're thinking that I haven't been rehabilitated, um, like 11 years, five and a half with one psychoanalyst, and five and a half with another one, and, and other forms of therapy, and all kinds of investigations and meditation and stuff. I am convinced that even though I still have not one conscious memory of this, it formed my life's career. It absolutely, I am just preoccupied with this. Like, I just go everywhere I go, I think, how is that person coping with that version of hell? How did they get through that? How did they get through, how did, and all the books that I read about the Holocaust, how did people get out? How, what is, oh my God. I mean, it's like, so I've always been preoccupied with this. I was always most interested in all movies when I was younger, in the movies of people who escaped from prisons. Like, how do you get out? Escape from Alcatraz and things like that. And so I was into that and I was into stories like that. And I was into escape stories and rescue stories in a magazine called Boy's Life when I was growing up. Like, Boy's Life was, I couldn't wait for Boy's Life to come. And I would turn right to the page where there was the story about the boy that saved somebody and and got someone out of hell, you know. And I was interested in Lassie as the show of Lassie was, a, every week we would rescue another person. So. I was clearly, though I grew up in rather benign circumstances. At least that's how I think of it. In Albany, Oregon, with a fa- family that was reasonably okay. Uh, actually, my mind was preoccupied with these things, and so in a way, it makes complete sense to me that I just did five years of to hell and back. I mean, and that that this is like there, and and that before that, I'm for twenty five years. I, I started out as medical director of the Department of Mental Health in Western Massachusetts. And every Monday morning for the last 25 years, right up to this past Monday, I do a two to three hour consultation with the most severely mentally ill people in Western Massachusetts who are absolutely impossible to treat. And and, and where I see the patient and then I see their team of people, the community, the case managers, the therapist, the doctor, the residential house manager the police sometimes the occupational therapist. we get these big groups and and so i've been every monday my life begins with like trying to figure out how to help somebody get out of hell and how to help the people that are helping them get out of hell and how to help the family get out of hell so it's been a preoccupation and it doesn't get tiring that's the amazing thing it's like people say oh my god Don't you want to do something that's like has a little bit more of a happier twist on it? Well, actually, I this is very meaningful to me. And I like starting my day on Monday with this. It really I feel like I have to be all in. And then Friday afternoons, which is when we usually do the podcasts, I see a different population of people. I mean, I mean, I did a lot of them just myself. And then Nicole has, thank God, joined me as a co-host. But it's sort of like I did a lot of there have been about 10 people in the past five years. That um, I and we have interviewed that have been in various forms of hell, as many of you know, if you've been listening to this podcast. You know, beginning with Domingo, who went through the hurricane with his kids, and uh, but also um, Cedar Coons, who lost her sister to suicide, and Andrea Rosenhaft, who went through years of borderline personality disorder and severe anorexia, and in and out of the hospital and in different forms of treatment is just an amazing story, and she herself is an amazing person who developed a sort of organization of her own called Be Well, Be Strong, BPD. And and she's on the internet, and she's consults to people about how to cope with these situations. And, And Andrea Gold, who we interviewed recently, who's been going through breast cancer treatment, and Seth Axelrod, her mentor before that, who went through cancer himself, of a rare form of cancer that was very devastating. And years he went, and so I did four podcasts with him and And uh Natalia Garcia, who back in uh, the f- spring of two thousand and eighteen met with me for uh for three meetings um, having lost her two year old healthy two year old who died overnight the night of the hurricane maria, which was incredible because. She's from Puerto Rico, and she was worried about her family all night long. She thought there'd be a tragedy in the family, but no one in Puerto Rico got tr- struck by a tragedy. But her two-year-old son died in the middle of the night for no obvious reason, still unexplained. That's been five years ago. So m- meeting with her, and there's, and I could, and then Beth McCrave recently, whose son Ross uh, killed himself. Uh, two, two, a little over two years ago and she spent two hours talking with me and Nicole and then her son Teddy, uh, which just got posted last week, the podcast, talking with Teddy about the, the experiences of his brother and the loss of his brother and then Teddy's fiancé, Mariah, and that was just posted yesterday, um, you know, who was a very dear friend to uh, Ross. And so all these different varieties of hell. And I just wanna say something about this because um, I try to understand how people experience their particular version of a hellish circumstance. And then how do they survive it? And how do they get out of it? And how do they move beyond it? And, and I have all these questions and it's a different answer with each person. But, um, and then when I stopped and thought about the past hundred episodes, and uh, many of which have been focused on this, and then most of them other than that are focused on solutions to being in hell, many of which came from Marshall Linehan and DBT. Um, I realized that it might not be fair in some ways to extrapolate from these people that I I and now we have interviewed on the podcast uh, and how they got through hell of their own. And why might it not be fair to extrapolate from them or might not work? Because my Friday afternoon podcast people population is very different than my Monday morning Department of Mental Health population of severe mental illness, because the podcast people, and I realized this when I thought of each one of them, and I've been the past week, I've been going over thinking about it and listening to some of the podcasts again. They are such amazing people that I have had the privilege to interview. I mean, what some people would call badasses. I mean, just sort of like these people are like, how did this person do this? they are people who faced difficult odds, uh, came through it and, and are very, they're very articulate. Every one of them is very intelligent. Every one of them is very skillful. Every one of them is talented in one or more ways. Every one of them is in an intact family. Every one of them is appealing and and conscientious. And by the way, the prognostic factors that have to do with how are you going to do with a mental illness, two of them that grow out of long studies of personality characteristics called the five-factor model of personality, there's two factors that weigh in heavily on future prognosis. And one is called agreeableness. If you're high on agreeableness, and it's sort of what it sounds like, it's being appealing and and uh, and and pleasing and connected to people, and high on conscientiousness. If you're high on conscientiousness and high on agreeableness, these factors seem to predict doing better than than if you didn't have those factors. So these were people who have, um, uh, and and a lot of them are just very uh, appealing and attractive people just to interview. So. Um, so I'm, this is a very select group of people who are not alone in the world like this, but they are filled with the graces and the blessings that p- predict that somebody would do better. And the, and the people I see on Monday mornings, these are people who are often of low intelligence, or at least they haven't been able to use it, or severe learning disabilities, severe medical conditions throughout their life. Um, They've been traumatized. They've been neglected. They've often been beaten. They've been forgotten. They don't have money. They're living on the public assistance. Um, they uh, uh, Some of them have been involved with the police a lot, which is like a whole system that you learn other things in. And, uh, and And they just don't have any of those blessings. Now, occasionally they do have some of those blessings, but it's just a very different population. So the question is, Can I extrapolate from the way the people in my podcasting people have have coped with adversity? Can I extrapolate that and say, is that of any help at all to the people on Monday mornings? And as I thought about it this week, and I sort of held my DMH population on one side of my head and my podcast people on the other side of my head and thought about the intersection of the two, thought actually, yes. Um, there are people, there are certain programs built into the human being for recovery. Putting it that way comes from my conversation with Natalia Garcia. When I was talking with her, we were talking about healing from trauma, recovering from trauma. And I was analogizing it to the healing of physical wounds. Like if you get cut, you get scarred. Immediately. It's incredible. I was saying to Natalia in this in this thing, said, you know what? It what's I've always been fascinated by wound healing and how it is that the body knows what to do. If you get a bad injury, the body knows what to do. And instantly, if you could look at it microscopically, and in through cell biology and through the microchemistry, it's like all kinds of systems rush into action the second you get hurt. You can't see them. You don't realize what's going on with your blood vessels and with your fine motor nerves and your fine sensory nerves and the enzymes that get released and the hormones that get going. It's sort of like, oh, my God. And uh, all of a sudden, what you've got is like, uh, it's sort of like a cleanup crew that starts immediately and works until you are cleaned up, until that wound is helped. And when that wound is helped, now you're better. Now, if there are times that won't work because the wound is too severe, there are times it won't work because there's something interfering with recovery. But what I found interesting about that is that in the human being, you think about homo sapiens have been around for something like 300,000 years. So there's been a lot of time for evolution. And in evolution, we have evolved ways to take care of ourselves that are actually quite natural and built in. And then I was saying this to Natalia, I was saying, I wonder if trauma, and she was, not only was she a mother and went through what she went through, she was a psychology graduate student with a specialized in trauma and she actually works at this point with Melanie Harned in Seattle around PTSD and trauma. And um, so, so what, what she said back was that she's thought as she studies trauma, that also within the human being, within the human genome and within our biology, we know how to recover from psychological traumas. There's a natural healing process And actually, most people who suffer through traumas don't get PTSD, even really bad traumas. People get exposed to a really bad trauma. They go through a certain kind of uh, momentary or a, a period of time of hell, and they don't get PTSD. The hell doesn't go on and on and on. It's the smaller percentage that get PTSD. And then those people have a continued hell that's internal, and it goes on and on and on but it's sort of like the idea that there are programs for recovery built within us. I got interested in that idea. And I was thinking, these people in the podcasts, these people who have been who we've interviewed in some detail about the kind of hell they went through, I started thinking, what are the big lessons? What are the guidelines? What are the ingredients of our human uh, trauma, and loss recovery uh, project that we all have, and because we, we all suffer with things sometimes. Some people suffer with bigger things than other people, and it's not fairly distributed, but but there are these things. And I started to break them down, and uh, I, I've probably done a very preliminary job of this, and it probably overlaps with other schemes like this that I'm not even aware of at this moment. But I'd like to share with you eight, guidelines that I think I've come across and that are not rocket science, that are not new, but it's helpful for me. And then I look at them and I think, okay, I've extracted these from my podcasting discussions. And actually, they're the same ones I use when I consult on Monday mornings about the Department of Mental Health clients. Um, And it's just that they're harder to use. You have to be You have to be more realistic in your expectations of how quickly people can do anything, what they can do, how completely they can recover because they they are beset with severe uh, mental and sometimes physical disorders that make it harder and they don't have life supports and resources that some other people have. But still the same idea is there, it's just harder to use. So let me go over them with you and I'd really be interested if any of you are listening if if you would get back to me and tell me your response to any of these and what you think of them and and whether you think there's things that are big big deals that i left out um and it would just be very interesting to me so you could leave a a comment wherever you listen to this podcast or you could go to my website charlieswenson.com and you could send me an email through my website um and you could uh you know do it that way but one way or another it'd be great to get some feedback So here's the things I thought of. I tried to narrow them down to make them quite hmm, understandable. I tried even to create a little acronym because that's what people do in DBT. But but I couldn't, (laughs) at least up to now. I couldn't think of a good acronym. The first one has to do with time. What I've learned from a number of the people who've been through hell and have interviewed with me is that you really have to watch out about having any artificial expectations about the time of recovery from traumatic experiences and losses, is that it actually is invalidating to people. If you think in a year it should be better, um, you know, there's several people, most recently I'd say with talking with Beth McCrave and, and she had a conversation apparently with Cedar Coons, another person from previous podcasts, where they talked about timing like that. And because Beth said, you know, it. Everybody said the second year was going to be better but the second year in some ways was horrible of of the loss and then Cedar said to her yeah i found the same thing and actually i found the third year started to be better and so you should not think that you can recover from really profound blows in a year necessarily psychologically that you met your life may be going okay but internally it takes more time. So the first guideline is realize that it takes a lot of time to recover. You, you recover in stages, you recover in phases, and people have tried to lay out. And, and there's, it's, it seems like there's no real shortcut. If you lose somebody who's one of the most important people in your life, it isn't like, it's gonna be like better uh, next week, six months from now a year from now, it could be that a year and a half from now will be your deepest, darkest pain about this losing this person. So there's not a timeline. I hate to say this because it's probably not very comforting if you recently had a traumatic event or or loss. But on the other hand, if you're living thinking the way the rest of the world is thinking, oh, you should be okay in a year, not necessarily. So I think time is one guideline I've learned from several of these people that we have interviewed. Like, you do you just don't know. And, and there's many things you can do, and that's what these other guidelines will be about. But just be aware that time is a big deal. Uh, time, they say time heals all wounds. I think that's an overstatement myself, but it, I do think there's something to it. Uh, it takes time. Second thing I want to say is about support. Everybody that I've interviewed on this podcast, has ended up talking about the nature of interpersonal support they've had. And it isn't necessarily listed as one of the skills you use to get through hell, but it is absolutely critical. And it's really hard when you don't have that. So that uh, uh, people like like Andrea Gold, uh, just brilliant person with the way she's using skills, the way she's using everything to try to cope with going through breast cancer treatment and her fears and, and decisions that she makes. You know, she puts out some, she writes something on this website to this program called Caring CaringBridge. Uh, over and over again, I read all of her writings and, and she's communicating to anybody who is on that, which are her support system, basically what she considers, you know, Andrea's army. And Andrea's army is like tuning in every week. How's she doing now? How was her latest radiation treatment? How did chemotherapy go? How is she feeling now? What happened to her son in her first day of school? And all this stuff is sort of like, she has not only not narrowed her support system, she's widened her support system during this. And and not everybody wants to do that. I know people who that's the last thing in the world they would want to do, but that's her style. She tends to be a bit of an extrovert. But other people might not widen it in that way, but to and like Natalia Garcia, take her having lost her two-year-old. I mean, when she lost her two-year-old, you should listen to this one. At one of the the uh, the um podcasts because she describes what was it like when she walked in, and she saw that her son Jackson was dead, and she'd been worried all night about the rest of her family. Like, what was that like? And and she describes in painful detail. She had, she's very uh commu- very articulate. It's like, oh, my God, you tear up when you hear this, like what she's going through at that at that moment. It's like you want to die. You think, how am I going to live through this? How am I going to go do anything? How am I going to ever drive back on the street where where I used to drive him to daycare? How will I ever speak again to the other mothers of the other two year olds that attended his birthday party? And they're his friends and the mothers are, are her friends. It's like, how am I going to? face these people? How am I going to be at home? What am I going to do? And so she starts there. Um, And then um, at a certain point that's very key, after many conversations with the other mothers, she realizes those other mothers don't know what to say. They want to be supports, but they don't know how to be supports. Every one of them is afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. If she visits one of the other mothers, she notices that they take down all the photographs of the children in the house because they don't want her to see the photographs of the children because they think that's gonna hurt her feelings. And so she starts to realize they don't know how to support me, but they wanna be supportive. And that was a very smart recognition. I mean, it could just just feel like giving up on your friends, but actually she decided to inform her friends how to be. So she wrote a letter that she read on the podcast called the letter to my mommy friends. And um, and you hear that and you think, oh my God, everybody should do this because friends don't know what to do. When you've had a terrible thing happen to you, friends say such stupid things. They don't mean to, they want to, they fall all over themselves trying to say the right thing. And we all do that. And so she wrote this letter saying, look, if you don't know what to say, that's completely understandable. I don't know what to say either. It's fine, just be there, you know. And don't worry about the pictures. And don't worry about asking about how I'm doing. Please ask how I'm doing, however you want to. You can't make a mistake because I know you're all well-intended. So she validated all of her friends and she suggested things to do. It was just brilliant. And it made me realize that's a really smart, and she's not the only one who's done things like that. Um, And then you think of uh, like Beth, Beth McCrave after she lost her son, the way she talked about how People don't know what to say and people are trying to validate her and be nice to her and say things. But the best thing she found was her best friend, Laura, who would come to her house and the two of them would take a five mile walk and they would just walk. And sometimes they would just walk and never say a word. And Laura would come there in the morning and they'd do a walk and she'd come there at the end of the day and they would do a walk. And they did that month after month after month. And it was the most comforting thing. And so Laura was kind of a, an introspective kind of person and an and and introverted kind of person who was just steady. And that was just perfect for Beth. And it's different for different people, right? So it's kind of like, how do you actually allow people to support you? Because you're so raw that if they say the wrong thing, it's understandable if you don't want to see them. But actually, you need them in some form. So the question is for you, and maybe with somebody else's help, figuring out how to help your friends be supportive in ways that you can feel to be supportive. Because so many times it's not supportive. Um, and so that's, it seems like that's another guideline. It's sort of an understandable guideline that human beings have built within our genome that when you go through hell, you need contact with other human beings. It doesn't have to be this moment and it doesn't have to be this way or that way, but. So that one thing is allowing for time and recognizing the role of time and time does heal some wounds and support heals some wounds. At least it reminds you that you're a human being in a human community. And even if it's one other person, like this person I know who wasn't on the podcast, but a friend I knew from a long time ago who was suffered from being a victim of childhood sexual abuse by her father. And it would happen on many nights when she was a child that he would come to her room. And she made it through the childhood and she made it into life and she became a highly successful and well-liked person and had a lot of relationships. How did she do that? And I asked her once. She said, oh, it's because I had an identical twin sister. Yeah, well, how did that help? Do Do you mean you talked with her about having been abused by your father? She said, no. No, um, but she and I stayed, well, we lived in the same bedroom. And he would come have sex with me. And the next night he would come have sex with her. And neither of us would ever say anything to the other one. And this woman, I knew her when she was in her mid-30s. And neither had ever spoken to the other one about what they went through as children like that. But she said the fact that her sister was there and her sister knew that she went through this was so validating. It made her feel so comforted that her sister was, was there and they were a community of two that both suffered through this, even if it was silently. So I just thought that was an amazing testimony to the value of just even one other person that is your person while you're going through hell or shortly after. The third principle or guideline that I noticed when I reviewed all of these people that we've interviewed is the way that most of them worked hard to maintain their life while they went through whatever hell it was. They kept trying to do their job if they could. They kept trying to go school if they could. They kept trying to raise their children if they could. They kept interested in their projects, whatever it was, their activities, their yoga class. In Seth Axelrod's case, he had always been a singer and he still joined up and sang. I remember him talking to me once in one of the interviews that he was on his way to a clinical trial in Boston because he went to one clinical trial after another. He was went through a lot of treatments that were very difficult. And he's on his way to Boston once. And I said, yeah, and then, and, and how did that go? He said, well, it helped because when I got outside of Boston, I connected up with this madrigal group and I went and sang with them the day before my clinical trial. I said, you did what? I said, yeah, I I would have just wanted to go to my hotel room and put my head under the pillow and try to go to sleep and wait until the morning. But he, he said, you know, no, it was very helpful. I said, was it hard to get yourself to do that? It was sort of hard. I had to question whether I would do it, but actually, I knew I wanted to do it. I love singing, and I didn't want to give up on my singing. I mean, I didn't know if I was going to live through this, but I didn't want to give up on my singing. That seemed like another incredible guideline is to to try to maintain your life, try to maintain your dietary habits, try to maintain your exercise habits, try to maintain your connections, your schedule. You can't always do that. Like take Andrea Gold's case, of course, like with most people, and this was true with Seth also, it just totally disrupted their ability to stay on the job. But on the other hand, they stayed in touch with colleagues as much as they could, and they would stay tuned in and still mentor some people, and still be interested in what's going on. So there's, there's that, and that was, I know that was true of Cedar Coons, who was out in New Mexico by then, when I did this. Another guideline. So now we've got time, the kind of support you get, and main to keeping your life going. The next one I wanna talk about is suffering skillfully. Suffering skillfully, what does this mean? I mean, part of what helps you suffer less is if you can suffer skillfully. And this comes out of all kinds of spiritual teachings as well as sort of stress management teachings is that if you can and when
1: you can, lean in to your pain, cry, be upset, allow it rather than block it, rather than avoid it. If
0: you can go into the fire, go into the fire. If you can go into the pain, go into the pain. Sometimes you can't, and then you need a different way to go, which is part of DBT of distress tolerance skills. But emotion regulation skills in DBT is aligned with exposing yourself to the emotional pain, because if you don't do that, if you think you can shut the door on your emotional pain, you might be able to momentarily, but it's gonna multiply and come back at you most of the time. So the idea is to suffer skillfully, is to try to generate the capacity to stay with yourself even when you're suffering. And one version of that of course is is to develop a mindfulness practice of some form, whether it's a body-oriented mindfulness practice or a mind-oriented mindfulness practice or a breathing-oriented, whatever it is, is that generating the capacity and the energy of mindfulness so that then when your pain comes or your emotions come or your agony comes or your depression comes, you can try to kind of penetrate that with awareness and penetrate that with mindfulness, penetrate that with observing it, noticing it, naming it, being inside it, um, not running away with judgments about it, not slamming the door on it, not taking on too much at once. It's sort of like if you, I remember interviewing a a woman with severe borderline personality and severe addictions and severe self-cutting and many suicide attempts. And this woman, when she was interviewing with me, and she was describing the chain of events that led up to a suicide attempt. Um, I said, is there anything else you could have done other than cut yourself when things were terrible? Did did anything else cross your mind? I And the way I put it was, if you couldn't have cut yourself, what would you have done? She said, oh,
1: I never thought of that. And she said, I probably would have cried. And I said... That sounds like it would have been a good idea. She said, yeah, but I can't cry. When I was
0: growing up, anytime I cried, my mother slapped me and told me I was a baby. And I got very deeply convinced that crying is really a terrible thing to do. But she said, actually, if I had, I said, and if you had cried instead of cut yourself, what
1: do you think would have happened? I don't know. I probably would have calmed down and gone to sleep. I said, how about that? How about practicing
0: crying? How about allowing yourself to cry? Or as she said, my therapist and I are working on that. I was doing a consultation. And I said, that's really important work. I said, to go into your pain, instead of cutting yourself, to cut it off, sounds like the right way to go. And it's the same guideline I'm talking about now. If you go through hell, if you lose your son, if you lose your sister, you know, if you lose something else if you have a diagnosis that is frightening to you. You don't wanna be there all the time, but you wanna be able to be there with your pain and be there with your fear and allow yourself to have it. And ideally, if you can, have some validating, supportive, compassionate person be with you while you go through that, because that helps. But sometimes there's maybe nobody there and it's nighttime and you're just crying. That's okay. That's like a guideline. And so the people that I talked to, I mean, uh, in about all these different traumas and, and hells of different kinds, you know, a lot of them described ways of suffering, just kind of like, no, I had to let myself be upset about that. I had to let myself cry. I started to write down in my diary what was so terrible about it. I started to think about, oh my God, uh, this is going to be terrible. Like in Andrea's case, in one of the things in the podcast that she said, Andrea Gold was, you know, I start thinking if I die, my three-year-old child is actually gonna have no conscious memories of me. And that tortured her. And then she had to think about that and let herself feel that and feel that that is a frightening thing and that's really upsetting. And of course, there are ways I can deal with that. I can be present with my child now, which is the best anybody can do, um, and not knowing what the future will hold. But it's kind of like suffering skillfully is a big part of the guidelines that I heard in the past five years is that you really let yourself suffer and feel it because you can't avoid suffering. (laughs) If you think you can avoid suffering when something terrible is happening, I mean, you're fooling yourself because it's going to come back at you in the middle of the night. And and as Marshall Linehan would put it in her metaphors, you know, if you close the front door of your house, it's going to come through the back door. It's going to get you one way or another. So you better face it. Um, So that's an important thing that I thought was represented by many of these interviews. Alongside that, interestingly, it's sort of like this double barrel response that I saw was really helpful for people. One is the suffering skillfully. Allow yourself to suffer. Lean into it. Go through it. It's not going to go forever. Every minute you're going to like, it's going to peak and it's going to go up and down and stuff. But while you're doing that, on the other hand, do what you can to pursue positive emotions. Like sometimes you're in such hell, you think, well, I can't pursue positive emotions. How can I pursue anything positive? Everything's terrible. But actually, if you put your mind to it and if you have ways to do it, in the DBT skills manual, there's this whole section on pleasant events, on figuring out what are the things that routinely and predictably will make you feel better, given who you are. And you want to come up with your own profile you know, for me, I get in a terrible mood sometimes, and I've said this somewhere along the way on the podcast. God knows what some of you have heard before um but i it's sort of like my wife would say, "Why don't you go to the golf driving range and hit golf balls?" and I'm thinking my first reaction I must say is sometimes like, "What a stupid thing to say. I'm feeling so terrible you want me to go hit golf balls, but actually it's the most brilliant thing to say because actually it's absolutely true. I can be in a terrible mood for reasons that are whatever they are, and if I go start to hit golf balls, I've done that since I was a child, I almost forget the rest of the universe exists, except that little golf ball lying down in front of me. And then I start hitting golf balls and see where it goes. It's such a simple procedure. I mean, it's not simple if you're a golfer, it's very complicated, but it's like, that's why people spend until they're 87 years old every day talking about their golf game. It's like unbelievably complicated, but as a practice, where there's no stakes on it. You just go hit a golf ball. It's like people who like to sail. Go go sailing. It's people who love to bake bread. Just go bake bread. It's like people who like to watch YouTube or watch whatever. So it's kind of like, if there are some predictable things you can do that bring you pleasure. I'm thinking of Beth McCrave. She suffered terribly. She suffered terribly before her son took his life. And after her son took his life. And yet she'd go out in nature, which she loved. She takes, she goes hiking re- regularly. She goes into the nature in New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. And she takes pictures of beautiful things and posts them on Facebook and stuff. But also she just goes into nature and she and she walks and uh, goes camping sometimes and things like that. And uh, Seth would go off the singing. And I see what... Uh, what Gandria Gold will go off with her, her children, and go off to a cabin in the woods. Not actually not that far from where I live. She lives in uh, Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. But she, she has a a, a friendship with Alan Frazetti, another DBT person, and Alan has a cabin in Belchertown, Massachusetts, in Western Massachusetts, and he lets her go use it. So she goes and she finds cool things to do with her children, even while she's terrified about her next treatment and whether it's going to work. So it's kind of like how important it is to pull yourself up out of your dreaded situation without invalidating yourself and say, it is a dreaded, this is a terrible situation, and I'm going to do something fun. I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to go be with that person. Or I'm going to go with be with people, and we're not going to be sick at all. You know, I had this experience when I, like, 28 years ago, in the summer, when I volunteered at the hole the hole in the wall gang camp in Connecticut with children. I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Something that Paul Newman developed with his philanthropy from his food business, and uh, and and there were 120 children there, all of whom had life threatening. Or chronic conditions, and I was in a cabin with eight of them. I was a volunteer. There was another volunteer, and then there was a staff member, and um, we had these eight boys. I still remember these eight boys. It's like twenty-eight years ago, and uh, and and they and the way the camp was set up was based on this principle. All day, they had stuff going on. It's like normal camp stuff. It was a chance for kids who spent their life in the medical system. To get out in the woods in a campground, a well-constructed campground, with wa- a waterfront, with a totem pole, with cool dinners, with singing, with taking walks to the degree that you could, because some of them were even we had one of our eight boys was in a wheelchair. Uh, he had you know, this is a boy who was an extraordinary athlete and student from New Jersey who uh, developed brain cancer. And he's, and he was there and he was probably two months away from dying and he was one of the uh, eight boys. and uh, And so he would go out and he knew that because the way that this camp worked, we would do activities during the day and go to the dining hall. And in the dining hall, there's an area for kids that don't feel good with very comfy couches in front of a fire. And you could hang out there, or you could hang out at the tables and eat your meal. Or you can go to the OK Corral next door, and the OK Corral is where the medical people are. And you can go to the OK Corral on your way to dinner and get your chemotherapy or get whatever you need. And then at dinner, there'd be singing, there'd be performing, there'd be funny things going on. One time we all came out, a of 120 kids and all the counselors, and none of us knew this was going to happen. And out in this giant field, there were about 20 hot air balloons ready to go up. And then everybody gets in and goes up. And it's like, oh, my God. But at the end of the day, we would sit in our cabins with the eight boys and the counselors, and we would have a conversation for about an hour and a half. And it was called cabin chat. And in the cabin chat, the kids during the week, the weeks that I was there, more and more would just be honest. And they'd just sit there and talk about their life was going to end or this one was going to end or what's this one want to do in its final months. And they're talking to each other about this stuff. I'm like dying of it. I mean, it's like, oh, my God, the magnitude of what these kids are facing is unbelievable. And they're just talking about it. And they wouldn't talk the first night about it. But by the third or fourth night, they're saying things that I've never heard in my life. Sort of like, so they were suffering, but it made their suffering better because they actually felt it and expressed it, and it was received. And at the same time, during the day, they're doing fun stuff. In the moment that brought their mind into the present moment, kids that are learning to swim for the first time, kids with sickle cell anemia, that were never able to get in a swimming pool because it was always a little bit too cold. So they would warm up the pool to exactly the right temperature so kids with sickle cell anemia could could swim. So there's this suffering skillfully alongside pursuing positive emotions actively. And the next one I would say that I saw in person after person in these interviews was they would um, pursue meaningful things many of them, if you're capable of building like with with Natalia, she joined an organization about kids that die of unexplained conditions. It's actually the the SUDC, what it, was it called? It was the syndrome of unexplained death of a child. It's like the grown up the higher older kid version of SIDS of sudden infant death syndrome and with research and everything, so she became part of that. She did fundraisers for that. She created her own whole system to honor her son who had died, Jackson, that got a lot of people involved in things. I can't remember the exact nature of it, but actually, since we're going to do a five-year follow-up interview next week, I want to ask her about that, and is that still going and remind me exactly what that was. But, and, and nearly every one of them, one way or another. I mean, Beth was already a family connections teacher, And she would continue some of that, Um, and uh, and nearly every one of them, one way or another, has incorporated what's happening into meaningful activity, uh, which then helps them in a longer term way. So that's another thing: pursuing meaning. And the and the last one I want to mention is what I'll call. There it was a potpourri of things, and I tried to think. What do I call this? I'll call this creative solutions creative solutions. So take Seth Axelrod. He would get on the internet and he would depict how he was doing for people uh, with cartoon characters and esp- I mean movie characters and especially Iron Man. So he started to call himself Iron Man and he would put cartoons up of particular things from the Iron Man comics and, and, and movies that represented beating off of this one and knocking down that one and making it with this. And he was showing, here's how Iron Man's doing today. And then it'd be like, Iron Man's laying down today. He's not doing so well, and but then he'd look a certain way. And then people would respond to him on the internet about I- how's Iron Man doing and stuff. So he would use this metaphor and it was funny. I mean, here it is, this person's dying probably of what he's going through, of this rare cancer. And he's making up this Iron Man thing and he's communicating to people through it. And when I went to his funeral, so did Andrea Gold. Um, I saw her there. And uh, at his funeral, I mean, he's talking about uh, Iron. He's talking about Iron Man, and and we're talking about Iron Man. People who would get up and speak at his funeral would talk about his humor and his Iron Man. So I think for some people. A sense of humor still works, and even is a, is a helpful thing to have. To it isn't like you're laughing at hell, but you're laughing your way through hell part of the time. You're having a day where you cry for part of the day, you do something meaningful for part of the day, you try to get through the fact that you're feeling exhausted for part of the day, and then you're and you're frightened for part of the day, and then you're making a joke at the end of the day for part of the day. In other words, your life still has some variety to it. It isn't just blanketed by awfulness every minute. Some people convert it to art, some form of art, some sort of painting, some form of writing, some form of craftsmanship. Uh, Some people will get involved in some kind of movement, some kind of martial art, some kind of yoga, some kind of dance thing, if their condition allows it. But something that's a little creative, a creative adaptation. And though I've pretty much, I feel like I'm running out of time, but I want to make one more point. Um, When I said that these guidelines that I'm sharing with you now, that probably you could have all made up without even hearing me talk. I mean, so it isn't like these are a rocket science or anything. I think they're part of our human condition that help us with recovery. And probably you recognize every one of them. But (laughs) what's tough is when I sit down on a Monday morning with people who have no resources, and their team who doesn't know what to do. And they say, what are we going to do about this person? There was this person from a local area here. And she, she was in her 50s, and she had had a pretty tough life. And when things were going bad for her at her group home, she'd go out on the highway and put up her thumb, and she'd catch a ride with a trucker. And she'd get on a truck ride with some guy that she never met. And she'd go wherever they're going. And she'd end up in Kansas, I remember once. And then we'd get a call from Kansas from some hospital saying, this person says she's from where, from there, but she was hospitalized for her psychosis here. And so um, can someone come get her? <laughs> like, okay. And so many times we'd have to go find her again. And we didn't know where she'd end up. And we didn't know what these men would be doing to her, what she's doing to them. And we don't know what's going on. And then she'd come back. And then it also, someone in one of our consultations said, you know what's interesting about her is that when she's in the hospital, she far prefers to be in respite programs, not hospitals. Respite programs are people stay a very short time. You're still a little bit confined. And someone else in the group said, you know what it is about her? She likes movement. She's always either on the go or she just likes people who are on the go. She doesn't like to be stuck in one place. Oh, well, that was interesting. What's the creative solution to that if she's living in hell? And so what somebody else came up with from that group home said, maybe we should redo her room as a bus station. That was brilliant. I mean, so actually she liked that idea. So in her house where she lived in her group home, they put up posters that would be like posters you would have at a bus station with schedules and destinations and pictures of buses and stuff like that. And they'd had a certain kind of music she would have in her room that would be kind of like Muzak from a bus station. And then she would ask people to come in and hang out with her from the rest of the house. Hey, why don't you come to the bus station? And that helped her, right? That's a very creative solution to being in hell. It's creative. It's sort of like Seth using Iron Man. And yet she's somebody with So few resources, I mean, Seth is one of the most skillful and endowed human beings I've ever met. I mean, the guy just was amazing. And that's why he was a mentor of many people and was so good at what he did. But it's sort of like, but can what Seth did, can that be used by somebody who's someone in her fifties who has schizoaffective disorder and has no resources and has had a terrible life? Actually, yes. You can use creative solutions. You can offer certain kinds of support you can learn to validate that person and give them, and it actually makes a difference. And you can help them maintain their life if they had a child 30 years ago that they haven't spoken to since then or something like that. So all of these things about pursuing more skillful suffering, pursuing meaning, pursuing positive emotions, um, pursuing creative solutions, pursuing humor, uh, all that stuff, and giving a compassionate support These things all matter, you know, and in terms of time, when somebody has a severe mental illness or lots of other bad things have happened in their life, you know, not only might they not expect the same full outcome of recovery, but they can expect some recovery. And it might take longer than it might otherwise. But, you know, given some time, I've just seen amazing things happen among this population. So look, everybody. I want to stop with that. It was a a, a, uh, it was a big dump. I hope it was useful for you to hear my brain dump about this stuff after five years of doing this. And um, I thought I was going to say something about our future podcast, but I think I'm going to hold off on that because of time. Right now, we are we're Nicole and I are having active meetings to discuss how we're going to handle
1: the next few months and what we want to do. And I would. It's good. thank you thank you but we're
0: gonna we're gonna be putting things together and it would be very nice like i asked earlier to hear from you about what you thought of some of these guidelines but it would also be very nice to hear from you uh whether you go through my website and leave something or you leave a comment in a podcast wherever you're listening to this as a podcast i mean we would just love to hear like what would you hope would be talked about in this next six months i mean because we're sort of forming our agenda now. Uh, like I said, next, what's your version of hell? What would you like to hear about? Like one thing we haven't done as much about up to now, I've done some podcasts on addictions, but but we haven't interviewed somebody with addictions and really gotten deeper into that, that problem. There's other things. Like I said, uh, Natalia is going to come back. I've talked to a couple people who are experts in the DBT world to come. If you have any ideas of things you want to hear about, and we're also going to set up times for people to, to be able to speak with us and uh, ask questions and consult. So, stay tuned. Stay tuned. And yes, absolutely, absolutely. We say that a lot. It never happens very much, but I want it to happen. On all of you, you, if you if you went to the trouble of listening to this whole thing, you definitely should do that. So anyway. Um, Thanks for tuning in. I hope we hear something from you about this. And um, Nicola, get better. This is like, you guys don't know the hell. She's been going through her own COVID hell. It's COVID hell, which many people have been through. And she's, so it's very, it's actually great that she's keeping her life up by coming to this podcast. You know, even though she's like battling a fever. (laughs) Okay, okay.
1: You're welcome. Take care. Bye, everybody.